Well, thanks again for being with us here at Grace. Uh, we're excited that you're here. We're having a great time together. Hope you've enjoyed our service so far. We're getting ready to launch in uh, to our, our next teaching in, in our series, Genius and Encounters with Jesus. And as just before we do that, I know some of you are missing a lot of sleep because you were up late last night watching the Buckeyes. Who, who's kind of hurting on sleep? All right. Need you to focus. We're going to re read a lot of scripture today. So... Hang in, all right? Be with us. So uh, we've been talking about genius, encounters with Jesus, and, and what you find as you read through the New Testament is it seems like every time somebody encountered Jesus, it, it, it always, they always came away surprised, shocked, maybe stunned, amazed. And that's kind of what we're looking at because Jesus gives them insights that they've never had before. And that's, that's what's happening in the text that we're looking at today. Actually, today, we're looking at John chapter 9. It's one of my favorite passages. The whole, this, this guy's not even named. He's a man who was born blind, and he encounters Jesus. He didn't even ask for the encounter. It just kind of happened. And then we see the impact of his life all through the chapter and again, just one of my favorite guys that's mentioned in the Bible, one of my favorite passages, that's what we're going to look at. What we're going to see is that sometimes, uh, even though we experience difficulties in life or disappointments, often God can use them to help us see spiritually, to help us come closer to Jesus. And, and that's actually kind of what's happening in this passage of scripture. And uh, so I'd like you to turn there, John chapter 9. And first of all, we'll, we'll kind of see some things, but I, I want to start reading. Actually, let me use this. Let me read this way. All right, John chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he had been born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. And when he said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spit and applied, it, applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? And others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he's like him. And he kept saying, I'm the one. And so they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay, and anointed my eyes and said to me, go and wash, uh, go to Siloam and wash. And so I went away and washed and I received sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I, I don't know. And they brought him, they brought to the Pharisees, the man who was formerly blind. And now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes I washed and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, well, this man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, well, 
How can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the man, to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he, he's a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? And his parents answered them and said, we, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. Or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then he answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? And they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he's from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here's an amazing thing, that you do not know where he's from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us. And so they put him out. And that means they put him out of the synagogue. So as we go through this passage, what I want us to notice is that one of the things is the change in the man. But first of all, we get that this man faced a lot of disappointments in life, right? Okay, I read a lot. It put you to sleep, right? Okay, come back, come back. All right, that was 34 verses. We got, we're going to read the whole chapter before we're done. Hang with me. All right. We get that this guy faced some disappointments in life. Think about it. He was born blind. In the first century, that's about the worst thing that could happen to you because you had no way to earn a living, no way to interact with, with people in a way that would be productive where you could be a contributor to the society. Basically, all you could do was beg and therefore just kind of exist hopeful for the generosity of others. That was his life. And no doubt, a guy that with a life like that, he's asking the question that sometimes some of us ask, you know, why me? Why'd this happen? This is a guy that would have asked that question maybe a million times. Why did this happen to me? What's going on? As a matter of fact, even the disciples were wondering, why did this happen? I mean, it's so devastating. And, and here's the deal. I know some of you would have the same thing. You've been in points in your life where you're saying, you know, why me? God, why can this be happening? Here's what we know. And here's what we also know from this story 
is that God can use the most disappointing things in our life, the, the major hardships in our life, he can use things like that to draw us to him, to help us to see spiritually. And that's exactly, actually, what happens right here. And not only did he have disappointment in life with his blindness, I mean, which was just devastating, he also had the disappointment in an irrelevant religion. I mean, think about first century Pharisaical Judaism at that time. What did, what did that religion offer him? Really, no answers, no hope, only condemnation. Because they viewed it, and, and we see this from the disciples, that if something bad happened to somebody, that that was God's judgment on them and that they had obviously done something wrong. But here, the reason the disciples are asking this question, by the way, disciples totally buy into that thinking. And the reason they're asking this question is because they're going, okay, the guy was born blind. Did, did he somehow sin before birth or God knew he would sin later or, or was it his parents' sin? That's how they're viewing it, that this is just God's judgment on him and God's judgment on him from whose sins, his or his parents? That's the question. His, his religion is offering him nothing, no answers, no reasons, only condemnation. As a matter of fact, sometimes that happens with people today. There, there are a lot of, because of conversations, I know there are a lot of people sitting with us today who would say that they experience the pain or disappointment or discouragement of irrelevant religion in their life. And, and that's one of the things here at Grace that really church, New Testament church should be and that we should be as Grace is we want to be relevant in people's lives. So a lot of the things we do around here is really just so we can answer questions, we can be relevant. The message never changes. It's always the same. The gospel never changes. But the way we communicate changes. Our style changes. The language we use has to change in order to reach each new generation. And so most of you have been here a while, you get that. And, and we see how God has used that. As a matter of fact, here at Grace, we want to be so relevant, it's like this, we're, we're trying, that we will use, this sounds kind of weird, we, we will use anything short of sin to win somebody to Christ and help them grow. Whatever it takes, kind of a mentality. So this guy, disappointment in life, I mean, he's devastated, born blind, He's got the disappointment. Religion's no help. It's, it's totally irrelevant to his life and his situation. And not only that, even the guy's family doesn't seem so great. Did you catch this in, in the story? I mean, at some point, you know, he's arguing with the Pharisees, and, and then they're kind of wondering, well, how can he be that guy? He can see what's going on here. So they get the parents to sort of ID the guy, but that's all the parents do, right? They, they're saying, yeah, hey, it, it, he's our son, yes, we can vouch for him. He's our son, and when he was born, he was born blind. But any, if you want any other information, hey, go ask him. It's like they refuse to get involved. They ID him. Yeah, he's, he's, this is who he is, but they don't want involved in this situation, which seems a little disappointing. I mean, they, they don't seem to be in there kind of defending him or helping him or, or anything like that. It's just, hey, we're out of here. And we know why they're doing it because John's telling us that they're doing 
that because they're afraid of the religious authorities who are going to basically put out of the synagogue anybody who is sort of talking positively about Jesus. They've already come to that conclusion. And so there's this, but these parents, they don't want to risk that. So they're just kind of saying, hey, he's on his own. He can answer your questions. But here's, here's what I'm telling you. No matter what your disappointments are, whether it's just life disappointments, maybe you've been hurt by religion or church in the past, or it's just been irrelevant to your life, or, you know, maybe it's family issues, you know, whatever it is, God can use our greatest disappointments in life to draw us to him. Or maybe a way to put it for this passage would be to help us to see spiritually for God to reveal himself to us. And that's exactly kind of what we see unfolding in this, in this passage. Um, you know, I, I, we, we talk about you know, that we take God's truth and we try to make it relevant and, and we're talking about a changing world. Um, there's, I just heard a statistic this last week, kind of a rule of thumb. 75% of 75-year-olds have been raised in church. 50% of 50-year-olds have been raised in church. 30% of 30-year-olds have been raised in church. 20% of 20-year-olds. We have to change the way we communicate so we can connect with people no matter what their disappointments, no matter what they're facing in life, that we can connect them and share with them God's truth. Well, that's kind of the next thing that we want to look for today is this encounter with Jesus and how God uses the disappointment in this man's life to encounter him. And now, But it's not just encountering Jesus. We're talking in this series about encountering the genius of Jesus. And the first thing we notice in this encounter is the genius of Jesus' teaching. I mean, basically, they come through, and there's this guy born blind, and the disciples ask this theological question, and then he's teaching. They're saying, hey, who sinned, the guy or his parents, that this would happen to him? And then he answers, neither. It's for the glory of God. But when Jesus is giving this teaching at other times in his ministry, he's drawing on the Old Testament biblical truth the revealed truth they had at the time. And Jesus is teaching the same thing that's there. And it's basically this. He's answering the question of suffering. That's one of the main questions people have about God today. And he's genius in his answer. His answer is true and it's correct. And basically, here's what he's drawing on to answer in the way that he did. He's reminding us that God did not create the world with suffering and sin in it. God created a paradise. He created a good world. He pronounced it good. But part of that is that he created man, people, in his image. When he created us in his image, he allowed us to have the ability to love him back, which no other creatures could do. So he gives man the ability to love God back. Well, when we have that free will... We chose, all of us have chosen, to rebel against him. And that's what happened in the garden. And when the rebellion happened against God, when they went against what God had said, then that all of a sudden introduced evil and suffering into the world. So that's where it came from. So Jesus is kind of reminding us of something, and it's this. Evil and suffering, you could say 
in a general sense, is the result of sin in a general sense. But, Jesus is saying, suffering in a specific sense is not always because of sin in a, in a specific way. Does that make sense? Are, are you kind of following me there? Is, is suffering the result of sin? Yes, in a general way. There wouldn't be suffering if there wasn't the sinfulness of man sort of from the very beginning, the fall of man, because the world does not work the way the world was supposed to work originally. Sin broke the world in that sense. So things aren't right. Things aren't the way they should be in a broken world that we live in today. Okay, so in a general sense, suffering and, and the brokenness of the world is a result of sin. But when it gets to specifics, when we suffer individually, sometimes that can be at the, the result of sin. That can be at the result of sin, for example. Suffering can be the result of sin, for example, when we experience just the natural consequences of our sin. It also could even be uh, the correction of God in our life if we're believers. But Jesus is telling us not always is suffering tied, a specific suffering tied to specific sin in our life. Sometimes it's just the general part of it. That's what he's making. Now, that we kind of, a lot of people today get that, especially believers. We've kind of heard that before. But in the first century, this is revolutionary. This is new. This is genius. In, in the first century, it was like, if somebody's prospering, then they have God's favor. So God must be okay with them. But if people are suffering, it must be that they don't have God's favor because they've done something wrong. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way it is. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He's saying, but this has happened to show the glory of God, basically. So why was the man blind? Because it's God's purposes. It's mysterious, but we know God's going to work through it. We may never see it, but we know God's at work. And if you understand this about God, this truth about God, then you will be equipped to handle suffering. Because you'll know that bad things happen. You won't be surprised that bad things happen. We live in a broken world. Bad things happen. And rather than react maybe like with anger toward God or a disavowal of God or there can't be a God, if this happened to me, you understand, no, we're in a broken world. We know why we're in a broken world and God can work through any situation. And just like he does right here. So Jesus' teaching is genius. But Jesus' teaching is always married with his love. It's always connected to, to his love. So in this passage, we notice that Jesus, hey, they're just walking by this guy. He's just kind of a, a theological illustration. The man, the men, the disciples ask the question about the man. They're just finding out. They're just trying to learn some theological truths. And by the way, they're, you know, what they're basing that on is, is totally a faulty assumption, a faulty premise. Jesus corrects that. But the point I'm trying to say is, Jesus also loves the man. What does he do? He doesn't have to. The guy's not even asking for it as far as we know. He stops and he heals this man. And really, he heals him at this time physically of his greatest need. He gets right on the level and he heals this guy. And all of a sudden, the guy can see. And uh, even though he's blind from birth. But there's something interesting that, that I want you to notice in this passage. 
Jesus then, he sends him off to the pool to wash. The guy comes back seeing, but all of a sudden Jesus is gone. You know, Jesus isn't that, in that section of the city anymore, apparently, because then he starts getting grilled. So Jesus heals him, and then he leaves this man to defend himself in front of all the religious leaders. Here, this guy, he's illiterate. He's been blind. And he comes back seeing, and now he becomes a point of controversy, and Jesus just, he's gone. He, so the, the man's got to, why would Jesus do that? Why would he leave this illiterate guy who didn't even seem to know who Jesus was before this happened, just a name, and all of a sudden he's now debating with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. That's where this happens. Well, I think you can tell from the story why. Because Jesus is genius. Because as Jesus leaves this man to debate the Pharisees, we see in this running controversy, controversy, this running debate, the man's, as he answers logically the questions, it's like we see the man's understanding of Jesus and his definition and identity of who Jesus is, is constantly changing. It's the argument with the Pharisees that draws this man to his own logical conclusions that hold it now, he can't just be a man. He's got to be something more. And we see that he changes all through that. It's like the best thing for him because he's confronted by his own logic about deeper truths about who Jesus is. And then another genius of Jesus is that at the end of this, Jesus teaches about this whole issue. It's, It's all like an object lesson teaching about the blindness of the sighted, the spiritual blindness of people who can see. And we see that how that really, that's how the passage wraps up at the very end of the chapter. Let's pick it up in verse 39. It says this. And Jesus said, for judgment, this is brilliant. And Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world So that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And kind of go, what? And continue. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. So, Jesus, kind of a tough teaching here. At the end of all this, Jesus says, basically, I came into the world so that the, the, the blind would see, the spiritually blind would be able to see spiritually, but those who are sighted, those who say they have spiritual sight, will be blinded. And we're going, whoa. what? And it's kind of like this. It's, it's the inverse nature of the gospel. It's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. Here, here's what he's... Here's the truth that Jesus is tapping into here. That in this world, there are some really bright and successful and people that do, you know, cool, amazing things. And and as as we look at them as a world, we're going, wow, they've got it together. They've made it. And they're what we would call the most advantaged. But what Jesus is saying here is the most advantaged people... In our world, the sharpest, the brightest, everything else, the the wealthiest, whatever, are the most disadvantaged when it comes to understanding and embracing the gospel. And 
but the flip side of that, that Jesus is telling us here, is by the world's standards, the most disadvantaged people, the people who don't have as much and you've got problems and disappointments in life and maybe their life's a train wreck, all this. They're actually the most disadvantaged in our world are actually the most advantaged when it comes to understanding the gospel. Do we get that? And we see how that happens. Because people who have it all together and... and they tend to rely on their own uh, smarts or their own wealth or, or the security that they've built in life. And then it's harder for them to see spiritually because they tend to trust in themselves because God's given them the ability to, to do you know, whatever they've done to be successful in life. And so they, they struggle. But people who their life is a train wreck People who are disadvantaged in life, they're sooner able to realize, I need outside help. And so the gospel makes more sense to them. Oh, we've got nothing to bring to God. It has nothing to do with my abilities. It doesn't matter how smart I am or how wealthy I am or how good I am. It's none of that. It's only Jesus. And therefore, they're advantaged. It's kind of like, I don't know if this fits a little bit, but... It's just counterintuitive. It's different than the way we think it would be. It's like um, when you, we were talking about a wealthy man last, uh, last Sunday, uh, the rich young ruler. But it's like the truth. This is just a statistical truth. People with greater incomes give a smaller percentage to charity. This is kind of just across the board. And people with smaller incomes give a greater percentage it's not the way we would think. It doesn't really make sense. That's just the way it is. That's, Jesus is just tapping into this fact. And, and maybe, you know how we're always saying, well, that just seems so unfair, so unfair when we see people in tragic circumstances. And I totally get that. And I'm not really even arguing with that. That's not my point. But my point is, maybe that tragic circumstance that the person is in will give them a greater advantage at seeing the most important thing they'll ever see in life, and that is spiritual sight to see Jesus for who he really is and then embrace the gospel. That's the genius of Jesus. It's counterintuitive. It's the opposite of what everyone thought. And it kind of ties back into, you know, when things are going well for us, when we have a great family or a great job or we've built a great business, or, you know, we're the smartest person in the room, we tend to stick that in the center of our life. And when we do that, to the extent we do that, we cause ourselves to be spiritually blind because only Jesus can be in the center of our life and nothing else belongs there. And if anything else creeps in there, even if it's a good thing like family, children, relationships, even if it's a good thing, that will jack us up. It will mess us up because it was never designed to be in the center of our life. Only God, only Jesus. So as, as we continue kind of wrapping this up, we see that his encounter with Jesus, encountering Jesus results in spiritual sight and spiritual sight changes lives. This is what I love about this passage is seeing the man's change 
all through this. Sometimes Jesus kind of gets the ball rolling, then Jesus is gone, then Jesus comes back. And here we see this man, he's left to kind of defend himself. He didn't do anything, he was just healed. He comes back, he sees, and then first it's his neighbors and the people that know him because they've, they've seen him beg. They're going, whoa, what happened here? Who did this? And he says, well, who did it? Well, the man called Jesus. That, that's just where he is, the man called Jesus. Then later, the Pharisees, that's in verse 11. Then later, the Pharisees come, and they start questioning him. They put him on the hot speed. Verse 17, we see then when he's challenged by them, he says, because they're saying, well, who is he? Who do you say that he is? Then the guy says, well, he's a prophet. I mean, he can't be a normal guy. So he gives him prophet status, and he tells that to the Pharisees. And we see him beginning to see not just clearly physically, but we begin to see him seeing more clearly spiritually, and, and it just starts. And then later, verse 27, the second time the Pharisees come back and start quizzing him. By this time, he gets, the Pharisees are not kind of an impartial court here. These people are opposed to Jesus. They're kind of ticked off. He's the opposition now, and they're confronting him, and we see him getting a little bolder in the way he responds. And so the second time they talk to him, what does he say? He kind of challenges him. Why do you keep asking me? Do you want to become his disciples too? You know, he knows that's not where they're going. But he's firing back. He's challenging them back because he's realizing that Jesus, but in saying that, he, he's kind of saying Jesus is worthy to be followed and defended. All of a sudden, Jesus starts being defended by this man. And then they get deeper in the argument. Verse 33, he's talking to the Pharisees. And then he's saying, well, he's from God. Otherwise, he couldn't have done this. So he's not just a prophet, but he, he's sent from God. And then even later, toward the end, when Jesus seeks him out afterwards, we haven't read that yet, but we will in just a second, he responds and he says, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Let's look at those verses, verse 35 through 38. When Jesus heard that they had put him out, out of the synagogue, and finding him, now Jesus comes, shows up. He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? When he uses this term, Son of Man, this is an Old Testament term from Daniel that the people of the first century who had the Old Testament books knew that this was a, a way of, of talking about the Messiah. So you believe in the Son of Man. And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, which is huge, and he is the one who is talking with you. And then the guy responds and he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Yeah. I am so glad the last part's in there. He responds, Lord, I believe. And then we're thinking, wow, this could be like almost like a saving faith. I mean, here we're months before Christ dies for our sins. And this guy seems to be putting his saving faith in Christ. And so we can kind of debate that, but then when he says, and then worshiped him, this is the only account in the entire book of John where a person worshiped Jesus. And what that means is when it says he worshiped him, that means he ascribed to Jesus the honor attributed to deity. He sees Jesus as connected to God. He, see Jesus, he sees Jesus as somehow God and he worships him. 
And so we see this guy go from minding his own business to encountering Jesus. And then when people are asking, well, he's a man, he's a prophet, he's worthy to be followed, he's worthy, you know, to, to fight for and to defend, and then he's from God. And then it's, I believe, and he worshiped. He worshiped him. You know, we, we talk sometimes about the fact that, not always, but a lot of times for somebody to come to faith, statistically, on average, they hear the gospel about seven times. Some people, first time, some people it takes longer. Statistically, on average, about seven times when somebody hears the gospel, it takes them that long to process it and kind of get it and then be able to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And of course, that's all in the context of realizing that, that we need outside help. You know, that we come to realize that, that we're all sinners, that, meaning that we've all done something wrong against God, every single one of us. That God's standard in the Old Testament, like the Ten Commandments, that, you know, as much as we, we might try to keep God's standard, which is a good thing, it really is given to us to, so we can all recognize that we all have failed. Just like what we were saying last week. That we're, we're all in opposition to God. We've all fallen away. We've all rebelled against him. Every single one of us, we're all in the same boat. And we all, from a just God, therefore, deserve punishment. And because it's God that we've sinned against, our punishment is eternal. That's what all of us deserve. It's like we all deserve, as sinners, the broken world that we're living in. And worse. But because God loves us, he made a way for us to be reconciled to him. Sinful people reconciled to a perfectly righteous and holy God. And he did that by allowing his one and only son, Jesus, to walk our planet, teach us, interact with people, encounter people, but ultimately die on the cross, tortured to death to pay for my individual sin and your individual sin. All our sins paid for on the cross at Calvary. Therefore, we have a way to be forgiven and the way we get that accredited to us, the way that counts for you and me is when we place our trust in Christ alone. We do that by, it's faith. We have faith by believing Jesus is who he is, son of God, and trusting in what he did, died on the cross to pay for our sins. And when we do that, if we're sincere, if we're sincerely trusting him for our salvation, we recognize that he should be the boss of our life and we turn to follow him. That's the whole repentance thing we were talking about last week. We turn, we change our minds about who Jesus is, that changes our behavior because we want to follow him. We have a desire to follow him. Now, here, we're gonna end, end this a little differently than, than we normally end and, and here's why. At the end of this, when this man says he worships Jesus, he's in kind of a, a semi, they're having kind of a private conversation, but it's public. We know that because after this happens, 
and we already read that part, but the Pharisees are overhearing what Jesus is saying to this guy. So they're no doubt overhearing this guy as he's saying, I believe, and is worshiping Jesus. And I only say that to say this guy goes public in his faith for Jesus in the middle of a hostile environment. He doesn't care. He's already been put out. He doesn't care. Lord, I believe, and he worships him, and there's other people around, even the enemies of Jesus hanging around. Goes public with his faith. Now, here's what I want to happen by way of response today. First of all, I know there's some people here, and, and we have a value that people could come in and be anonymous and sort of hang out with us and learn more about God. And, but at some point, we want to know you. And so if you've never filled out one of our cards on the chair rack in front of you, if you, if you just haven't done that or you haven't done that for a long time, we'd just like you to write your name down so we know you're with us. And then we can put you in our database, <laughs> which I know is frightening just to think about that. But we just want to know that you're with us. We just like to have a record of you being with us. So if you think that applies to you, I don't know that. There's ways we record that you've been here. If you check in kids, we know you're here. If you go to a class, we know you're here. If you give, we know you're here. You know, if there's some way for us to track that, it has your name attached somehow like a check or an envelope. So there's some ways we know. But a lot of times people come and we don't ever know. For months, people could come and we don't, you know, some people might know you're here, but we don't. We'd like you to fill out a card. You get it. We'd like you to do that today. But here's what I'm really getting at. If you have kind of gone through this process that we're talking about where you've come, you're kind of interested, or maybe there was a, a need or a disappointment in your life, and you started interacting and finding, coming to church, finding more about Jesus, and then you came, maybe you came to the point where you placed your trust in him, like many did last Sunday. If you've done that, and sometimes we ask you know, for a response, and we try to track who indicates that they've become believers, and Here's what I'm asking you. If you've done that, say, in this calendar year or since Christmas, we would like to know that because we don't always know. Sometimes you tell us, and there's other ways we, we might know that. Or if you've been through 101, we would know that maybe. But otherwise, we don't know. Here's what I would like you to go public. I'd like you to trust us enough to go public with your decision to follow Christ. And so here's what that looks like. The easiest ways... Not here to embarrass anybody. or I just want you to grab one of those cards on the chair rack in front of you or lean over somebody and grab one. Or if you see somebody leaning, just pass one over to them. And then just flip it over to the response side. And there's a place, kind of my decision, it says, I think there's one that says last week. I trust it. That could be true of you because several did. Just check that. But if it's not last week, it was last month or two months ago and you don't think we know about it, you could just cross out last week and just check that box anyway, then flip it back over and just put your contact information. And then, yes, you will be entered into our, the dreaded database of Grace Community Church. We promise we're not going to show up at your house. We're not going to do anything like that. We're not going to do anything to weird you out. We just want to know you better. Can you do that? Apparently not. Okay. <laughs> I gave it my best shot. I'm hoping that was, yeah, I'll do it, but I just don't want to say anything. When you fill that out, I invite you to take a card, and if you fill it out, you could just bring it here and set it on this platform, and I'll grab it, or you could take it over 
you know, on the way out, there's our information center. Just drop it off there. You don't even have to say anything. Just drop off your card, and uh, that'd be great. And, and just one last thing. If you're here today and, and you realize, you know, I'm somewhere in between. He's a man, but I haven't got to I'm worshiping him yet. We'd love to help you out with that. So I'll be down here for a few minutes. I'd love to talk to you. Or you can go to room one where some other pastors will be on the way out. We, we have some literature for you. If you don't really want to talk, we're here to help you. We're here to answer any question you have in a relevant way and point you to Jesus. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father God, we're so thankful that you've brought us together as a church. And we're, we're thankful also, Lord, that every Sunday uh, we have people our friends, our neighbors, people sitting with us that, that may not have come to that point of worshiping you yet. And we're excited about that because that's exactly where the rest of us used to be. And Father, we pray that uh, those that that describes, that you would continue to draw them to yourself and that you'd use our church to help point people to Jesus. And God, for the rest of us, that we continue to grow closer and closer to you Lord, that we mature in our faith. God, we thank you for loving us, even though none of us deserve it. God, we thank you for loving us not just with words, but with action, tortured on the cross for our benefit. God, thank you. Lord, help us to follow you. And Lord, help us to kind of get in community uh, with grace. Go public with our faith. And God, if there's any that, that maybe they're at the point of decision today that they wouldn't leave until they put their trust in your son Jesus and him alone for their salvation. God, thanks. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Bring those cards if you have them. And thanks for being here. See you next.